Today we're thinking about uh, the next episode of the book of Exodus in our series, Stepping Out with a Saving God. Uh, It's Exodus chapter 32, so let's read it together, starting at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. Uh, and have made uh, and uh, and have said, "These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt." I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. 
Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. Soon, uh, so he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. This is God's word, and we're talking today about provoking God. Provoking God. Uh, 42-year-old Ron Wayne uh, was one of the three original founders of Apple in 1976. Um, maybe you're even watching this on an Apple product, an iPhone or what have you. Uh, Ron drew up the partnership agreement between himself and co-founders, the 25-year-old Steve Wozniak and 21-year-old Steve Jobs. Uh, Ron signed, uh, designed their first logo and he wrote the manual for their first computer. But working relationships were not easy. He described Steve Jobs as awkward and manipulative, saying, if you had your choice between Steve Jobs and an ice cube, you would nestle up to the ice cube for warmth. It was essentially his way or the highway in many of his business decisions. And so not even two weeks after they founded the company, Ron Wayne relinquished his 10% stock share of Apple for just $800. Now, had he retained his company shares, his 10%, they would be worth nearly $100 billion today. Or apparently, uh, they would have been last year. I don't know how Apple shares are doing this year. It's a funny year for, uh, for markets, isn't it? And now for the record, Ron Wayne doesn't actually regret the decision. And I dare say that in 1976, if not even still today, $800 was worth getting back. And even though he doesn't regret it, it's obviously the kind of story that does the rounds every few years with headlines like World's Unluckiest Man or Worst Possible Swap Deal. <clears throat> World's Unluckiest Man or Worst Possible Swap Deal. Uh, but as far as swaps go, this isn't, this isn't even close to the worst. Um, we're looking at a swap today that is without doubt a disastrous exchange the worst possible swap and it's not just bad luck either the people of Israel were not unlucky as you might be if you sold shares in a company that went on to do very well this wasn't bad luck it was an outrageous betrayal and that's where we start today 
Sin is utter, outrageous madness. Sin is utter, outrageous madness. Uh, So what's going on? God is meeting with his people at Mount Sinai, giving them his law, making great promises to them, and covenanting with them, binding to them in something uh, not unlike a marriage commitment. The people have promised to do all that God has said, and their leader Moses has gone up to the summit of Mount Sinai to receive further instructions from God. Uh, And we noted at the end of chapter 24, a couple of weeks ago, Uh, that he was up there in the cloud of God's presence for 40 days and nights. Now, last week, uh, we saw what those instructions were that he received, uh, blueprints and plans for building a tent in which God would live among his people, present with them. They were instructions for a mobile, transportable temple and a system of worship for honoring and approaching and living with this great God who has saved them out of oppression and slavery and insignificance and death in Egypt. And we saw last week lots of echoes of the Garden of Eden in that tabernacle tent. Echoes of the time before sin, before human rebellion against God, when God and mankind could live together in peace and unity. This tabernacle was a step back in the direction of that lost intimacy. And this week we see that while Moses was atop the mountain learning how that paradise could be partly restored... The rest of the people of Israel were at the bottom of the mountain, shattering that peace all over again. Israel was to be a new humanity, a fresh start, but the old human nature still lurked in the new. Israel follows Adam. Israel rebels and falls. So what happens? Look at chapter uh, chapter 32, verse 1. Uh, When the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this chap Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. Where do we even begin with this? Moses was so long coming down. I mean, 40 days uh, minus the amount of time it took to do what they did in this chapter. Let's call it five weeks. What's that? 35 days. Five weeks. It's not that long, is it? In fact, here's God's take in verse 8. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. And what do the people want? Well, I guess they want to get going. And they want gods to go before them. But these are the people whose God did go before them on the way out of Egypt in a pillar of cloud uh, cloud by day and fire by night, whose God parted the sea before them so that they walked through on dry ground whose God promised in chapter 23 to send his angel before them all the way to their new home, whose God is even now before them in the cloud on Mount Sinai. And they seem to think that this same good God has either killed Moses or let something happen to him so that he's not coming back. They're ready to ditch Moses and ditch God and set off on their own, smashing the first commandment to which they committed so solemnly just weeks before. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And now Aaron, Moses' brother, who's been with him through all of this and has seen and taken part in everything, Uh, Every miracle, every uh, wonder, he's obviously concerned. So he tries a compromise, verse 2. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. 
And then they, the people, said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Maybe Aaron's a bit concerned about that. So he says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. Now, Aaron doesn't want the people to replace God. That would be uh, pretty serious. Instead, he settles for them reducing God, reimagining God. In other words, Aaron says, hey, don't break the first commandment. Let's just break the second one. Uh, It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And rightly so. What a pathetic nonsense this is. Did the people not go out and gather manna that very morning, the bread that God literally rained down from heaven for them every day? And so Aaron, like some groveling politician, tries to keep the people on his side, leading them by following wherever they want to go. Or like some sniffly archbishop, desperately tries to make God relevant to the people by allowing them to completely redefine who God is, which of course is make-believe and only means reducing God, remaking him in our imagination, much smaller, more manageable, taking the God who made us in in his image and remaking him in ours. And you can see Aaron sniffling and whining in verses 21 to 24, playing the blame game and passing the buck. Moses said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Well, he actually said, bring it to me, didn't he? Um, Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Come on, man. Stand up and own what you did. He is right at the heart of it in verses 2 to 4. He asked for the gold to be brought to him. He fashioned the calf with a tool, verse 4. It didn't just flop out of the fire fully formed. Aaron is Adam all over again in Genesis 3. God says, what have you done? Adam says, Oh, the woman you put here, she made me do it. Passing the buck. It's pathetic. And on the subject of the worst ever swaps, the most disastrous exchanges, well, you can forget Ron Wayne and his Apple shares. Here it is described in Psalm 106. At Horeb, which is Sinai, at Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory for an image of a bull which eats grass. Or Romans 1, where Paul explains what sin is in all of us. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. That's sin. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Psalm 106 doesn't say calf, uh, but bull. Uh, A bull would have been a common enough symbol of strength and fertility in the surrounding nations. And I mean, have you seen a bull? (laughs) You walk along a country road and you see one standing and he's got a field all to himself. And he's, there's no mistaking, that's no cow. Big beefy brute and he's only got one job nowadays and that's making babies. Strength and fertility. Well, we don't have anything like that these days, do we? I mean, except for the actual statue of a bull on Wall Street 
the financial center of, of the United States and, and in many ways the world. In recent weeks, you might have heard of a bull market when the financial markets recover strongly from a crisis or crash. Strength and fertility! Or the personification of English national pride. What's his name? John Bull. Or we talk about being bullish or having a sacred cow, the prized possession that no one can touch or the subject that no one can raise. We may or may not make statues and altars nowadays. Well, many parts of the world people do. But we have idols just like anyone else. Our society is full of gods, things people put before them to serve and pursue and follow, believing that, that happiness and safety and prosperity lie in following and serving these gods. In his uh, super little book on Exodus, which has been a great help to me in this series, uh, Tim Chester recalls uh, how his family would walk to church each Sunday morning and pass a neighbor on his knees every Sunday morning washing the wheels of his car with a toothbrush. But Exodus 32 isn't about people out there. It's about God's own people. This is the church of that day. What are our idols? Like Israel, are we desperate to take God's gifts without God himself? Would we rather have Santa Claus just leave the gifts under the tree and be on your way? Do we want God's forgiveness while we don't want to obey his will? Do we want to pick and choose what we accept and believe about him, reimagining and reducing him till he suits us? trimming off the bits that we don't like. I like to think of God like this, or I don't think God would be against that. Are we like Aaron, so desperate to stay relevant that we compromise until our message for the world is just a bad joke, just a laughingstock, verse 25. The tragedy of this idolatry in God's people is that it's a betrayal. It, it's adultery. The people have bound themselves to God in a covenant relationship like marriage, and they're already cheating with someone else. Imagine coming home from honeymoon, and a few weeks later you catch your spouse blatantly cheating on you. It's disgusting, and it's, it's devastating, and it's disastrous. Sin is outrageous madness. Is that how we see lingering sin in our lives? The echoes of Adam lurking alongside our new nature in Christ. The Bible talks about killing sin so that it doesn't kill us. It's a sharp, stark warning. Look in the mirror of Exodus 32 today. Look long and look hard. See the warning. See the danger. See the deadliness of, of the outrageous madness that is sin. Sin is utter outrageous madness. Here's our second heading for today, and, and we'll speed up a little bit now. Uh, God is glorified both in judgment and mercy. God is glorified both in judgment and mercy. Uh, verse 9, he says, I have seen these people, the Lord says to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, uh, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation. So uh, God says that the problem with these people is that they won't bow 
they, they won't accept him as God. They are stiff-necked. Uh, and he is ready to, to write them off and start again with Moses. In, in, echo, in, in further echoes of, of the, the, the creation chapters of Genesis, actually, God sees this evil and threatens to start all over again, just like he did with Noah after the flood and with Abraham after Babel. He threatens to decreate what has decayed and recreate from what remains. But God doesn't just do it. He doesn't just get on with it and immediately destroy and rebuild. He tells Moses what he's going to do, as if to invite Moses to object and intervene. And Moses does, verses 11 to 13. He appeals to God that if he wipes out his people in anger, then the Egyptians will question what kind of a God he is who would even do that. And he will have broken his promise to Abraham uh, and and, uh, Isaac and and Israel, the man Israel, Jacob, uh, to make his family into a great nation with a new home. And so God relents. He holds back. There's some mystery here, isn't there? The mystery of God's sovereignty. Elsewhere, the Bible is clear that God does not change his mind. And yet he invites us to pray and to appeal to him to act in this way or that and to fulfill his promises and so on. And it's like an Irish or British plug meeting a European wall socket. Our, our way of, of interacting and relating doesn't seem to be compatible with a sovereign God. These things don't seem to fit together. One way to fit it all together may be to say that God is in charge of everything, including our prayers. He knows what we will do. Well, he knows what he will do. Uh, and he knows in a way, and in a way ordains, what we will freely choose to pray about. And, and he chooses to respond to our prayers. He decides to use our prayers to change things pretty mysterious. We could have made the whole morning about this mystery, uh, but I think that would be to let ourselves off the hook of Exodus 32. It's really about the utter madness and outrage of sin, but it's also about God's glory, and he is glorified both in judgment and mercy. Everyone in the world has no problem accepting one of these ideas. If you're in a culture of duty and honor then of course God is glorified in judging and punishing what rightly uh, must be punished. Justice is glorifying, just as injustice is shameful. And you just won't have to turn on the news at the moment to see that injustice is, is shameful. Or if you're in a culture of uh, second chances and, and, and pity, if, if I can put it like that, then of course God is glorified in showing mercy. There's a way for, for mercy to be a happy ending as well. But both? Well, that's what we need to learn. God is glorified both in judgment and mercy. And maybe one of those uh, seems more obviously difficult for you to accept. And that's the thing that you need to work on, uh, on understanding. You might reckon, for example, that Moses thinks God is overreacting. Uh, But in fact, they share the same reactions out of the same respect for God's glory. God burns with anger in verse 10 before showing mercy in verse 14. Moses pleads for mercy in verse 12 before burning with anger in verse 19. And both of them uh, then bring judgment. Moses and some from the Levite tribe hack down 3,000 people with swords. While God sends a plague, verse 35. 
Moses smashes the stone tablets of God's law because the people have smashed the covenant. It's like a spouse who's been cheated on, smashing the wedding photo in its frame or, or burning the wedding album. In verse 25, the people are out of control in their sin, running wild and dragging God's reputation through the dirt. So much for Aaron's attempt to limit their sin by compromising with a so-called lesser sin. Take note, that does not work. That compromise does not ever work. But on a positive note, the Levites who take up the cause of justice and of God's reputation and glory are said, verse 29, to be set apart for God, literally holy to God, and are blessed by him for being on his side instead of compromising with sin and sinners, even though those sinners are their own people, and I dare say it was not an easy thing for them to do. Holiness matters. Israel was to be a holy nation entirely. Sin is brutal. Temptation makes sin look harmless and even fun. Um, But in reality, sin looks like 3,000 lifeless corpses. Death is what sin really looks like. Moses grinds up the golden calf and makes the people drink it. That so-called God is literally going to pass out of them over the next day or two because that's what idols are and that's what they're worth and that's where they belong. Sin is outrageous. Justice is done and God's glory is achieved in judgment. But God's glory is also achieved in mercy. Judgment isn't the last word. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. I mean, it's just not in doubt. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses pictures God with a book, a record, a census of his people. The Israelites have just scored their names out of that book. They have no right to be in it. They have checked out and left. So Moses offers to be blotted out in their place. Uh, Just like Paul does, actually, for the Jews who reject Jesus in Romans 9. Moses offers to be held responsible for their sin if that would only save them. But Moses can't do that. He's not enough. Verse 33, the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Judgment will come. But in mercy, it has already been postponed. Uh, God did not... Uh, wipe them out and start again with Moses. And it will still be postponed, verse 34. Uh, Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. Um, However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. God is glorified in mercy, and he does show mercy in this chapter. But ultimately, God's true mercy and his true judgment come much, much later. When the time comes... And that's where we finish with our our third and last, I think, shortest heading. God's judgment and mercy meet most gloriously in Jesus. 
God's judgment and mercy meet most gloriously in Jesus. In verse 14, God shows mercy through the mediation of Moses. Moses mediates. He gets in between God and his people, and he intercedes. He speaks to God on the people's behalf. He doesn't speak in their defense, of course. There'd be no point in doing that. I mean, it's, the case is closed on that one. Uh, but he pleads for God's mercy. Ultimately, it's Jesus who is our true mediator and theirs. All of God's mercy, mercy to us now, mercy to his people in ancient times, it all flows out from the mediating work of Jesus. When the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin, says God. What time is that? It's Good Friday, when judgment and mercy met in Jesus. Do you remember uh, John 12 that we, we covered in April? Jesus talking about his death uh, a few days beforehand. He said, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Or John 17, the night before Jesus died. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. God is most glorified as Jesus willingly dies under a torrent of judgment and justice against the outrageous madness of our sin so that we can live under the refreshing, revitalizing reign of his mercy. Moses offered to be blotted out of God's book of life so that the names of God's people might remain in it. Now, he couldn't do that. He wasn't mediator enough, but another mediator came who was enough. And he was blotted out, crying, Father, forgive them, as he hung on the cross. And now, instead of our names being blotted out of God's book of life, it's our sins that are blotted out. Peter preaches in Acts 3, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. And so Jesus says to his people in Revelation 3, that whoever turns to him, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. John's vision in Revelation 19 includes these verses from verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened another book was opened which is the book of life the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books God has two types of records on file sins and names and either your sins are in one book waiting to be opened or your name is in the other book. If you haven't turned to trust and follow Jesus, then your record is waiting for you. It's getting longer by the day. God is incredibly patient, postponing, but judgment is inevitable. Won't you look for that mercy in Jesus? There's no need to face him like that. Ask him for mercy, for forgiveness. Turn away from the utter madness of sin and come back to him to the God who is like no other. <laughs> and if you are his in Christ, then your record in those books is written not under your name, but under Jesus' name. Everything you've done that would see you rightly blotted out has been marked down to Jesus. And your name has been transferred to the other book. 
to the book of life. And Jesus himself will one day open that book and Revelation 3 says, I will acknowledge your name before my father and his angels. God's judgment and mercy meet most gloriously in Jesus. He is the kind of God we have, a glorious God of justice and mercy. What other God could we possibly want? As we finish, it's it's not for us to take up swords and hack down sinners. (laughs) Uh, Not out there in the world and not even in the church either, but God's word is a sword by which we are to cut down our own sin that lurking, uh, lingering echo of the old me. We must not settle with sin or compromise with it. Sin is not harmless. It is like rot and decay and death. It's like cheating on your spouse just weeks after the wedding. And sadly, we're not free of sin yet. Sin is still with us. But in Jesus, we are already and irreversibly holy to the Lord set apart for him, safe with him, forgiven by him because of Jesus, where justice and mercy met most gloriously once and for all. And with that in mind, let's pray. Father, what a disastrous swap. What an awful exchange sin is to betray you and to turn to absolute dross as if it was better. Father, what can we say but that we are so sorry? Sorry most of all for the times when we go back to sin even as your people, already saved, already loved, already forgiven. Father, help us not to compromise with sin in our lives as individuals, nor as families of your people in our local churches, but to call it out and cut it out. But even so, Father, we thank you that we are holy. We are set apart for you, not because of our efforts against our sin, but because Jesus suffered and died for all of it at the cross. He carried our sin and was blotted out along with it so that our names might be written indelibly in his book of life, one day to be read to you by him. Father, what a saviour he is. We thank you for him. We ask that you'd help us to look more and more to him as he leads us home for his glory and for our good. In his name. Amen.